Hello, this is Todd A. Dos Reis, ASC, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. Welcome back. Welcome back. Where did I go? I've been here this whole time. Waiting for Come you. On. Welcome it welcome back to the Cinematography Podcast. It's another fine episode. Who do we have on the show today? We have Todd Dos Reese, the cinematographer of The Blackening, currently in theaters, very much in the spirit of movies like Scream and Cabin in the Woods. It's got touchstones, but but it is a horror comedy, really well done, directed by mm, Tim Story okay. and shot all in LA, which I found surprising. And my other surprise, which you'll hear in the interview, which is genuine, is they filmed it in 20 days, which I cannot believe. Wow, that's fast. It's it's a solid film. It's very good. I don't want to say any more, but definitely go see it. It's in theaters. It's doing pretty well. Awesome. And now, Close Focus. All right, so Ben, Close Focus this week, uh, we got something interesting to talk about. I know we've talked about AI a lot, but I feel like... There's sort of a milestone which just happened. Do you uh, you want to tell our, our, our audience what happened? This is actually a story that you made me aware of. I didn't know about an artist being banned by Midjourney over creating fake photos of cheating politicians. And uh, you found it on a website called Petapixel. And I got to say, pictures look really good. <laughs> like they, they do. They're just shadowy and fuzzy enough that it feels legit, not generated by AI. And basically, you know, they put Ron DeSantis, Joe Biden, uh, Barack Obama and Donald Trump in very compromising situations in hotel rooms with uh, people who are not their spouses. And it, the person who created these, who came up with the prompts and created these, you know, incredibly photorealistic images, shared them on Reddit and made it extremely clear that these were not real, that these were not, you know, they were not trying to discredit people, but it was really making it known as an example of how dangerous this technology could be, especially to politicians. And he had done it, though. He'd actually generated the prompts for these images like months and months and months ago, but finally kind of worked it together and put a post out into the world. Yeah. And I guess it's in a Reddit forum that is known to be populated by people who work for MidJourney. And seemingly like within 24 hours, boom, he was banned. He's completely shut down from the service, cannot use it anymore. And I don't think he did something that a whole bunch of other people couldn't have done. And supposedly they're changing the prompts now to try to remove like political figures and stuff, I guess, from their platform, yeah. from their, their database. I heard that Xi Jinping, leader of China. I mean, I mean had, good luck with that. But yeah. Yeah, has been completely removed. Like like you can't use his name as a prompt for anything. Oh, so well, what you can do yeah. is you can ban something from being a prompt. But given that it's machine learning that's been training on every photo ever taken in the history of photography, good luck being like, hey, we're going to just get rid of Barack Obama as in the entire data set. Like that seems, that yeah, seems nutty. I do think that we are on the precipice of a very slippery slope. And interesting that this is... We, we've uh, been sliding down this slope this whole time. And I say this as a mid-journey aficionado. The fact that you can I'm make talking the, about the cancellation, though. I'm talking about the cancellation oh. of the users and the cancellation Mid of prompts. Midjourney so, yeah, threatens like, to, can't, to, to kick me off the platform constantly. 
and you, I'm not doing for, any for your for your Muppets meet Mad Max or your that's well that's not, not for that but I'll but I'll uh, you know like try and do a kids book called Hell is filled with meat clowns. <laughs> there are certain words that are banned, like uh, and one of them is Cronenberg. Really, I don't I don't know if they changed it, but yeah, like if I wrote you know Cronenberg poster art for. Yeah. For Cronenberg's remake of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you would get flagged. It wouldn't do it. And uh, this is why there are open source ones like Stable Diffusion that are going to catch up. Interesting. So just a quick Google search right now. I've got the list of banned words from uh, from Midjourney in front of me. Uh, Would you like to know what else is on here? I would love to. Blood. Gruesome. Guts. Mm -hmm. Cannibal. Gory surgery yeah there's a uh, hemoglobin is <laughs> interesting yeah the way i get yeah, around got... some of that stuff is to use just say meat nazi also banned jail banned drugs banned <laughs> uh torture banned fart banned <laughs> fart i mean like tor- torture i get fart i mean eh. yeah okay. fart or farts hot hot is banned supposedly and then maybe perhaps not surprising uh waifu so interesting yeah i mean there a lot of it you, you get you go like okay you're not allowed to uh have sexual situations or you know like you're not allowed to create porn uh, you know they have i would say some common sense rules and at the same time i kind of go like uh, i don't know if i could do anything with this why shouldn't i be allowed to do anything with this but again you could do that with stable diffusion um, I don't know what Adobe Firefly's guardrails are, but I do know that part of their guardrails is that they're using a data set that's a little bit more restricted because they're only using pictures that are either public domain or they own them to train the models. So they can actually compensate people when their work is referenced. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, this mid-journey, I love it, but it is totally the Wild West and, you know, they're trying to rein it in. You know, here's the thing too, is like you look at these pictures and yeah, they, they look semi-convincing and they've been using ai art in some i believe online and possibly television campaign ads like uh ron DeSantis has been using has been using some i don't know if donald trump has but like they've been using them to create ad, uh, political ads and and i think that actually the 2024 election cycle is going to ramp up on stuff like this we're going to see a lot of stuff that we're going to be expected to believe is real and is not real as you know, like any one of these pictures, you take any one of these images and you put it through enough Photoshop filters and I would believe it, actually, you know, hmm. like yeah. what doesn't work about it is it looks too pristine. It's and, too good. And it yeah. looks like it, somebody's like right up on top of these people with a 50 millimeter lens. But if you made it look more voyeuristic, which you could do within within uh, Midjourney, even within the creation of it, you could say like shot through a window or, or shot on a log lens. You can get very specific about how you want it to look. And they could have made these look more believable. As it is, you go like, okay, if uh, Ted Cruz was having an affair, I don't think he'd have someone taking a picture three feet away from him. But that's probably not. Yeah. If, if they'd put it like, yes, through a, a long lens in a hotel room yeah. window. Make it look like a paparazzi been. photo. Yeah. You, you could definitely you make it look like security cam footage. You know, you think about the uh, Access Hollywood tape with, with Trump. Somebody like that in, involved in a scandal with an audio tape like that could say, that's fake. That's not me. And- enough people might believe it. Yeah, that's true. It might let some people off the hook who shouldn't get let off the hook because they'll be able to scream, you know, deep fake and AI art and all of that. 
Well, you know, it's certainly interesting to see what's going. And uh, you really were, we're crossing a threshold of may not be able to trust your eyes and coming into the political season. So what the heck does that mean for the rest of us? It's uh, interesting. It's going to be, yeah, it, it just requires greater media literacy on all of our parts. And we know how illiterate. We know how most... illiterate the American population is. So that'll be uh, interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Well, not uh, anyway. Not dystopic <laughs> at all. And on that not... note, let's go ahead into the interview with Todd Dose-Reese. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so I'm here with Todd Dos-Reese. Thank you so much for coming on uh, the show. Todd Dos-Reese has a movie in theaters right now, The Blackening, which I think is doing really well. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks, Ben, for having me. Oh, no, no. Uh, def definitely love it. Alana always puts me on horror movie detail. That's like uh, my corner of the show, uh, at the very least, as, as, a, as a big horror fan. And kind of glancing through your filmography, you've actually worked on a bunch of horror movies over the years. Yes, surprisingly. <laughs> um, when I first started out as a camera assistant, I started out with uh, Russell Carpenter. Yeah, and we've had him on twice. He's great. The very first movie I started out with was Critters 2, which kind of <laughs> horror comedy. But yeah, I've done a, a few horror films, and I'm not a horror guy at all. No. Not at all. I'm more of I'm more of straight drama. I like mm -hmm. uh, tension, um, but horror was never my thing. I I grew up watching tons of movies. I grew up going to the theaters by myself as a kid, like eight years old, sneaking into movies. You know, I saw The Godfather when I shouldn't have seen it. I saw like tons of black exploitation and Bruce Lee films, but horror was never on my radar. But I worked on a few, and then when uh, Tim Story called me to do the blackening i jumped at the chance just because it was a chance to work with him who i who i love working with we had done a bunch of pilots and we had known each other from usc both graduates of usc film school oh interesting and uh i just jumped at the chance and we had a great time with it uh so, well actually go ahead and, and tell me a little bit more about your uh, your history with tim story so i i graduated before him uh, he was a few years after me, but we always were on the same radar just because there are so few black filmmakers at USC Film School that we knew about each other. And I did my career path of going through, uh, once I graduated, I had two kind of paths. I had a get into the union path, which led me to camera assisting for many mm -hmm. years. And then at the same time I was camera assisting, I was also shooting music videos. So I did a lot of music videos. And Tim had done music videos as well, but we didn't work together in music videos either. We actually worked together on a short film of a friend of ours where Tim was a production designer and I was a cinematographer. So that's how we first started working together, but it wasn't really, you know, close. Then I, the first pilot, we did a pilot for HBO called Brothers from Atlanta that got mm. picked up by HBO. And then as they wrote the scripts, it got dropped by HBO. So, mm. so we did the pilot, and they loved the pilot, but we didn't get to do the series. Uh, and then we did another pilot and another pilot, and one thing led to another. And next thing, we're always in contact with each other, but um, he called me to do the blackening, and I jumped at the chance. That's really cool. So uh, the blackening is, is really fun, and I would say, like, as a massive horror guy, I definitely saw shades of Scream. I saw shades of Cabin in the Woods. I saw Shades of Saw. Were there any touchstones for you horror-wise as you were preparing to, to make that movie? That's funny you say that because I have seen none of those films. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
<laughs> but Tim is more of a horror person than I am. So maybe it came through him. But the ones we talked about, we talked about the classics like Exorcist, mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Because I like to I like to lean into the classic directors of photography mm-hmm. who, who who love that genre and were great at that genre. We also talked about uh, a film called Don't Breathe. That oh, we yeah. really we really leaned into on that just because of the the way the colors popped and the way basically they were trapped in the house the same way our characters were. But the the look I, I like to think was based heavily on Don't Breathe. Uh, Tim and I were both fans of it, and we dissected it a lot during the prep of uh, the Blackening. Uh, it's a beautiful film to to reference. One of the things that I kept noticing about it was just like how dark you let the frame go. And I think that the traditional route of a horror comedy would be to maybe be a little bit more bright or high key, but you definitely let stuff go more edge lit, more dark, you know, let us look around the frame for what horrible things could be hiding in there. Uh, Can you talk about the decision for like how to construct that, that look that you did? In our initial meeting, Tim and I talked about this. We said Tim would handle the comedy of it. Mm because he's an expert at that. He's great at shooting it, dealing with the actors and their comedic talents. And I said, I wasn't going to do any kind of comedic lighting. I was going to light for the drama of it, mm. the, the, hor- the horror of it. So we try to play that fine line where a lot of discussions on set and in post where, is this too dark? It was never, is it too bright? Is this too dark? Because hmm. I, I, I never wanted to, I had done so many comedies and television that I didn't want this to be bright at all. And I thought, it can't be bright. It's at night. Most of the film takes place at night. Most of the time the lights are off or there's very little lighting in it. I wanted to keep it dark to keep the suspense on. And I did, I did not want to see the uh, the monster in a bright light. And I tried to play that a lot. So Tim and I were always, you know, playing uh, where we can light certain things from. And a lot of times with a budget that we had, it was easy because we couldn't afford a lot of things. So <laughs> a lot of times, budgetary wise, it was like, oh, this is how many lights we're going to have for this. And this is how I'm going to light it. So a lot of a lot of things were dictated by the location, the the main house that we shot in had track lighting. So I took that as a a jumping off point where, okay, if I only have track lighting or I only have a practical in the corner, that's what the room is going to be lit by. We don't want any any moonlight unless there was complete darkness. Because in my theory of lighting, the only time you see uh, moonlight is when all the lights are off. And if if you see you've seen the film, Ben, so there is a scene where the lights go off and you see nothing but moonlight. So a lot of the things were dictated by the story. A lot of things were dictated by the location and the budget. Was it all location? Yes, 100%. Oh, I my mean, God. I just assumed that, that the interiors were set. But, I mean, like, you know, shooting something like that on location, I assume, would come with huge restraints in terms of, you know, how high you could put lights or fly walls or anything like that. Oh, no. We, we shot mostly at a house in Brentwood. Which in had Brentwood? A, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> We had to have a place where we wouldn't see any other houses because they were supposed to be out in the, you know, cabin in the weeds type thing where we're out in the wilderness, nowhere, no one around to help you. So the place that we found was a great location, but it was like on a major street in Brentwood that you've probably driven past. (laughs) Um, That's so funny. And what we did is just we, we denied the neighbors 
we didn't shoot that direction or we put up bushes to hide it. <laughs> but we were right in right in the middle of Brentwood where you see bike riders going up and down the hill. No way. We had a 12 o'clock curfew, so there was a lot of time. Uh, there were a lot of times where we had to um, tent the house. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, if you had to be out of there at, at midnight, then that means you, you couldn't only start shooting at like 6 o'clock at night or something. I think for us, that helped us, the tenting of the house, because I've been doing this a long time, and all night work, when you go straight all night work, the crew starts to wear down. Oh, yeah. And you lose creativity after, I don't know, one, two, three in the morning, where it drops considerably. So I think tenting the house and having a 12 o'clock curfew helped us as far as being fresh every night, every day and every night. So we had a great first AD, Ian Putnam, who scheduled it amazingly. So we had, you know, a fresh crew, a happy crew, and everybody loved working with Tim. So it was, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So, but we were never on a stage. We never had, you know, control of everything. And it was, yeah, it was great. So let's talk a little bit about the lensing, like how you lensed, how you decided how to move the camera, all that stuff. Like where were those kinds of ideas coming from? What were you trying to get across? And I always like to ask, were you trying to build an arc into the way that you told the story, either with lenses, lighting, camera movement, any of those things? Was there a specific visual story you were telling? Tim and I discussed pretty much everything. We had a, a good amount of prep time. So we knew we wanted to have it feel normal at the beginning. So a lot of our early stuff, especially all the day stuff, and early into the house, were on uh, stable platforms like dollies and mm. steady cams or just sticks. So we discussed that arc of being stable. And then as it got more suspenseful, we got more into the handheld field. We, and then I also tried to create an arc with lighting. So my lighting felt very normal and standard at the beginning. And then as I think once the lights went out, we, we got more stylistic. Mm -hmm. So we would add colors and we had to add colors. Like because we were in this house, I, I always like to, when I have a low budget shoot, I like to lean into what lighting I have at the location or what lighting do I have on the streets? you know, lean into what I have there and augment it from there. So we took the track lighting at the house and it was normal at the beginning, but then when everything hits the fan, I think I added some half blue to MR16s, which were part of the track lighting. Hmm. Or I warmed up practicals that were in corners of the house. And that was the influence of Don't Breathe. They hmm. used a lot of color in that. But it, it helps because I, I feel like with horror, it's not reality. Yeah. So I, I felt stylistically I could be more expressionistic with color because it was, there weren't a lot of things you could do with the camera other than handheld and bringing it you know, low or putting it in people's faces. I like to do my style and expressionism in uh, colors and in lighting. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I mean, like, I know you said that you lit it and lensed it in a more dramatic fashion, but there are a lot of good visual jokes in it. And I don't want to ruin any of them for anyone, but even like literally the last shot of the movie is a punchline of a joke. So how do you meld the darkness and the horror, which permeates the film so thoroughly and still have room for the comedy to work? Or is it just driven by the script and the, and the performances? I think that that was a complete Tim story add on uh -huh. that they came up with 
it wasn't our last day of shooting, but it was one of the last day scenes that we had at the Brentwood house. So that was, I mean, that was straight slapstick. That was straight yeah. out of the, exactly. the mind of Tim's story. I, I was like, <laughs> when we were shooting it. It was like, I didn't know where we were going with it, but I think it's great in the movie. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> and, it, and it worked. And that's, that's, the, that's the genius of Tim. One of the most interesting things that I'm finding out about this, and I didn't look to see like where you'd filmed it, but like I assumed you'd filmed it out in the hinterland somewhere, you know, or at least Santa Clarita, like way, way, way out. It's crazy that you were filming this in the middle of urban Los Angeles. And sometimes it's funny to see that movies like uh, The Prestige, movies that are like highly stylized that don't look like they're happening in a major metropolitan area are filmed here. Yeah, it was amazing. The farthest we went was the uh, convenience store out in Palmdale. That's the farthest we went. Even the road to get to the cabin or to the house in the woods was in the valley. Really? It was just on little, little hilly roads in the valley that we shot up and down, you know, with greens on, on the side of the hills. Oh, so wow. we, the Palmdale was the farthest we went. That was one day. And I think that might've been our first or second day that we shot and that was it. And then everything else was right in the city of Los Angeles. I mean, honestly, that just makes me happy because uh, so much production leaves L.A. and it's great to see something like this. And you even saying it's kind of a low budget movie, you know, like I feel like the current belief system is that you have to have an enormous budget to shoot in L.A. So it's great to see something like this that had a modest budget and really looked great. And But of course, when you're working out of L.A., you have access to the top crew and everything like the So many of the amazing people who do this for a living are right here. So it gives you uh, easier access, at least to, to a lot of those people, would you say? Yeah, it was a it was a pleasure to shoot in Los Angeles because I think after that I spent literally a year and a half in tax incentive states and countries. So it was a joy to be in Los Angeles for the whole twenty days that we shot the blackening. Oh my God, you shot that in twenty days? Yes, twenty days. Oh my God, I can't believe that. Yes, twenty days, <laughs> twenty days. That's and, insane. Yeah, Tim Tim is a master at you know getting what he wants quickly. I light pretty fast. We do a, we, if, if you give me a lot of prep time, I can get it done really fast. I've, I've worked in television so long that it, it's, it's groomed me for like, how fast can I light? How fast can I give the director the set? How fast can I change over to the next shot? So television has had benefits for my feature career. Can you give us any secrets for how to, how to do that? Like the movie is exquisitely lit. The lighting is, is beautiful. It does not look like it was, it doesn't feel rushed in any way as a viewer watching it. And, you know, I went and saw it on, on a big screen. What are the secrets to, to making that work? Pre-production, 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 and having a great director. <laughs> we, we did so much work in pre-production about, you know, how we're going to light certain scenes. And then once I have a master, I try not to do a lot of relighting other than minor things. Like the major lights stay where they are. And it's a lot of tweaking and moving small lights so that you can move fast. And if you have a director that knows his coverage or her coverage and they know what they want, it makes it super simple. It's not brain surgery by any means. It's just you have to have the prep time and you have to have a director that knows what they want and knows how to cover a scene and knows what they're going to need in editing. And Tim is a master at that. But I, I mean, it, it's surprising to me also, like with Tim Story's filmography, that he would be in a situation where he would need to make a movie in 20 days. 20 days is just like crazy short, even for a movie that mostly takes place in one location. 
what, well, I mean, I think I think Tim just was in love with the script. Uh-huh. And as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, my God, this is a game changer. This is going to be a fantastic uh, project to work on. No, and, and I mean, it, it comes off great. And and then on top of that, also, like, I would assume if you were making a movie in 20 days that you would have had to go into extra innings every day, but you had a hard curfew on every single day that you shot or every day that you shot at the house anyway. So compliments to both you and Tim for figuring that out. And I don't know if we should let potential producers and studios know that it's even possible to make a movie of this quality in 20 days because it, it really it really shines. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it, it's more about the team. It's more about Tim, Ian Putnam, the first AD, the producers, Jason Clark and Marcy Brown, uh, mm-hmm. Dewan Fox, another producer. We just got together and knew what to do it. Like MRC had done a bunch of low budget horror movies. So they, they knew it could be done. But yeah, let more producers know that it can be done. It, it can be done. <laughs> in LA. You, don't, you don't have to go to Canada or Atlanta you know, to do it. Well, let's go back and talk a little bit more about your career. Something that I think is always fascinating to know about is just from from you, like what was it in your life or at what moment in your life did it occur to you that cinematography was a profession you could pursue that kind of set you down the path that you're on today? Um, I don't think I knew that until I was deep, almost out of film school. Growing up in uh, New Bedford, Massachusetts as an only child and growing up in uh, housing projects, my entertainment was sports and film. I literally played sports, you know, Monday through Friday. And on weekends, I went to the movie theater. So I was seeing, you know, every Bruce Lee film, every black exploitation film that was at what was called our state theater, now called the Zyterian Theater in New Bedford. And I watched a lot of television because I was, you know, home with my mother by myself. So that led me to getting a camera from my grandparents. They bought me my first 35 millimeter film camera and I would take a lot of pictures, which led me to printing my own pictures in the high school because we had a black and white lab and also working in the TV studio. So I started looking as TV as a possible way to go to college. And Mm. uh, I had my TV teacher give me a list of the top TV film schools in the country and USC was on the top of the list. Bingo! That's where I want to go. And luckily I got in. Once I got into film school and I started taking cinematography classes, I started looking at cinematography as something that I might want to do once I got out of uh, film school. So I didn't discover that I wanted to be a cinematographer until I was in USC film school. When you left, was cinematography the track you would say you were on at that point? Oh, definitely. I definitely, by the time I was probably in my last year, that's all I wanted to do. Like I shot my film partners and everybody in my class, their, their projects. Mm-hmm. And I would also, you know, started doing little music videos on weekends. So, and I was also like doing music videos for the people in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be a cinematographer. And uh, I mean, I'm sure there are many more that I'm not thinking of, but there are kind of two basic lanes that people go into when they decide to go down that path. Uh, you you kind of did the third, which is either like go be in the camera department and get in the union and work your way up through the ranks of that, or go out and hang a shingle as a DP and work on smaller stuff and get bigger and bigger and bigger. But it sounds like you kind of did both at the same time. I did, but there were also, well, that movie I talked about with that I got started with Russ Carpenter, this was an internship that I started while I was at USC. That internship led to being a production assistant on Critters 2 with Russ Carpenter. And once I got my way, worked my way to the set, there were three paths for me to go 
as far as that movie was concerned. I could go camera, I could go grip, and I can go electric. Yeah. Um, you know, work my way up as a, as a gaffer or as a key grip. But for some reason, the, I, the, the camera people latched on to me and I latched on to them. And I was taking, I was taking home mag- film magazines on the weekend to learn how to load. Oh, so I literally taking home BL fours and Airy threes and two C's and loading film, practicing with dummy loads on the weekend at home. I was started to load their film without anybody knowing. So I was loading <laughs> without production, even knowing that I was loading the film. And finally they said, we need a loader. And, and the camera people tell me, you're not a load. Do you want that position? So I went from intern to production assistant to loader. Oh, wow. Then Russ started a second unit and I became the second AC. So on that one movie, Critters 2, I did four positions and that got me on the road to the camera department. And that was my road. But there are, yeah, like you said, there are other roads where people come out of film school and go straight to DPing. I just didn't have those connections. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I was shooting music videos, I was shooting very low budget music videos but I, didn't make, I couldn't make a living shooting those music videos. I had to do camera assistant work and work my way up the union ladder to operator and then eventually DP. And you worked on some really cool stuff in that, in that department, though. Like I see on your filmography, Double Impact, which was uh, John Woo's first American movie. Not Double Impact, pardon me, Hard Target. I see on there Hard Target, which was John Woo's first American movie. I'm sorry. I was thinking Hard Target and looking at your IMDb page and I said the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, but, don't get uh, don't get your Jean-Claude Van Damme films mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> but like Hard Target is a really cool movie. I mean, that was, you know, uh, John Woo that was uh, produced by Sam Raimi, I believe. Like it, it's a pretty amazing movie. But you worked on Pet Cemetery too. I mean, I, it, it's interesting. So working on Critters 2 kind of opened up a door and enabled you to work on a bunch of these things. Ghosts can't do it. John Derrick's last movie. Yes. Well, that was that was all because of, of Russ Carpenter and his team. We yeah. basically stayed together most of my early career where I was, you know, a, a loader, second AC, first AC. But yeah, Hard Target being John Woo's first film, I think I started out as the A camera second and I would move to, because John Woo, when John Woo shoots, he shoots with a lot of cameras. Yeah. So you could have five, six cameras going on a shot all day long. So even though I was the day camera second, I was bumping up to C camera first AC work. Mm. So, you know, and that was an amazing experience because we shot that in New Orleans and me being a big fan buff, I had studied, you know, coming from the Bruce Lee camp, I had studied John Woo. So I loved his movie. So when we came, when we got to New Orleans to shoot this, I just started asking John questions every chance I got. And, we became so close that he gave me he gave me his copy of Hard Target. Oh wow! I have somewhere, but he was fantastic to work with. And, yeah, and a one of a kind filmmaker too. I remember being like so excited that he was making his American movie debut, and I, I feel like Hard Target is a movie that isn't we don't bring it up as much as as we might, but it's really good. Like it's really fun, and Jean Claude Van Damme at his prime, and just a, an A team of genre filmmakers all kind of having a great time. I I love that movie. But yeah, so at what point did you say, okay, I'm not going to do, well, because you moved all the way up to operator. At what point did did you like, did you make a clean break and say, I'm moving into being a DP, I'm not going to do any of that stuff anymore? Or was it more of a phase out over time kind of a thing? Uh, No, it was, uh, that started when I started doing, when I did the pilot as an operator on Entourage. Oh. So 
we did the pilot and then we went to season one, they brought in a new DP who I know, Steve Fairberg, and he already had his camera operators for season one, but they would bring me on as the C camera operator or the second unit DP. So I did that season one. And then from season three to season six, I was the A camera operator. So all that handheld shots that you've seen on Entourage, that was me. That was me walking oh, wow. up and down, walking up and down Sunset backwards to oh, follow man. the guys. And that was a great, great experience because we we got we got to go everywhere. We went, you know, Sundance Film Festival, we went to Cannes Film Festival, we went to Dallas Cowboy Stadium, Yankee Stadium, Hawaii. You know, TV shows didn't do this back then. And we got to go to all these locations. We saw every new restaurant open in LA, every every new club that opened in LA. We had insane cameos by actors and celebrities that wanted to be on the show. So it was a great experience. But in all that time, I think I started talking to Doug Ellen, the showrunner, and said, you know, hey, Doug, I, I would love to shoot an episode. And he finally gave me that chance season five. And I shot my episode and then season six. And I said, hey, Doug, I really would like to shoot a season. And then season six, he gave me two episodes to shoot. And then between season six and season seven, that's when I said, hey, Doug, I'm not coming back unless I'm, I'm a, the DP, full-time DP alternating mm -hmm. DP on season seven. And uh, he gave me the okay. And that's when I started DPing. And I, I, w I didn't look back after that. That shut the door to anything but being DP at that point. Yes. Yes. I, yeah, I won't, I won't go out as an operator. I mean, what I'll is, operate, I, I'd operate for a friend on a concert or a sporting event, but yeah, I don't work as a camera operator anymore. Like what advice would you give to someone who's sort of at that precipice of saying that, you know, they're ready to move up from AC to operator or operator to DP. When do you know when it is the right time for you to do that? Um, I, and I, I don't think it's just operator to DP. I think it's like loader to second AC, second AC to first AC. You have, you have to know when, when it's time. You have to know when you're ready. You have to know when you have things to learn, but you're ready to go to the next level because you, want, you know you're going to be a better operator. You know you're going to be a better DP. So it's, it's just about a personal thing. Like when you know, you know. It's like I, I knew long before they let me do it. Like I wanted to do it season five. But they, you know, they wouldn't let me do it. But the, the A camera operator position, or even the B camera operator position on any show is literally, in my opinion, the best position on set. Really? There's not a better position. No. Well, the, just, the, the operating, I mean, even I would say B camera, just because sometimes you get to go off and shoot things. You're sometimes telling the story that they're only looking at A camera, but you're getting them great stuff that they're going to use. That's going to definitely make the cut and save, sometimes save the cut. But I think that I always say the B camera operator position is the best because you get sometimes you don't work every shot. You go shoot something. You should go shoot a second unit, go shoot an insert or, or shoot something they need for a past episode. The opposite of that, the worst position on the set is the focus puller because you never get any credit and no one knows what you're doing until you're out of focus. Yeah, yeah it's super high pressure. Exactly. Living on the razor's edge. Well, we're about to bump up on time, but before we go, uh, well, firstly, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, I, I can't encourage people enough to go check out The Blackening, which is still playing in theaters. Where can people find you or your work online if they wanted to see your work, interact with you, however you use the internet? My website, which has all of my work other than The Blackening, has uh, mostly of my TV shows. It's uh, toddostreese.com. And that's R-E-I-S. Uh, so, so T-O-D-D-D. 
O-S-R-E-I-S. ToddIllustries3Ds.com. Yeah. 3Ds. You need to make a 3D movie just because of that. Anyway, um, <laughs> you got 3Ds in your name. Yes. Um, all right. Well, Todd, thank you so much for coming on the show. Congratulations on the blackening, and it's, uh, it's great to meet you. Thanks, Brad. It was a pleasure. All right, so that was uh, Todd Dos Reese. Thanks so much for being on the show. He's really great. And again, uh, while it's still in theaters, go check out The Blackening. All right, Ben, it is that time again. You know what time I'm talking about? Time for ice cream? <laughs> I, I know what it is in your house, but uh, no, it is time for us to pay <laughs> the bills. We got to thank our fine friends over at Airy, maker of incredible lights, cameras, uh, lenses. They've been a sponsor of the show for a long time, and we really appreciate their support. They've uh, they've really been a great partner for us. They have officially supported a production called Tiger Stripes. Uh, Tiger Stripes was the first Malaysian film to win can with the help of uh, area equipment. So, and I wanted to mention this uh, very much in particular because Tiger Stripes, the production, didn't use the top of the line brandest newest airy camera they use an area mira which is an incredible camera but it's also a little bit uh, you know older now uh, that doesn't mean it's not incredible as a matter of fact i would say that the area mira is like some of the best ergonomics like of, of any camera that's ever invented and i know quite a few people out there who still have them and use them all the time they are amazing and if the Ari Amira is uh, certainly capable of making a movie today in 2023 that can, you know, easily be on par with all the other stuff out there. That's really saying something. Uh, they also used Airy lighting and it tells a very interesting story. It's a horror fairy tale about a 12 year old girl named Zafan as she goes through puberty. And it's a really huge win and a monumental win because, you know, Malaysia has never done this at what is arguably the most prestigious film festival in the world. So Airy wrote a really nice article about it. We'll put a link to it on the show notes at camnoir.com. And if you want to check out some cool behind the scenes photos and also get the full uh, lowdown on the win for Tiger Stripes, uh, there'll be a link there and you can check it out. Congratulations to uh, to Ari and to the, the filmmakers. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. Pretty, very cool. And now short ends. So Ben, it is time for us to talk about our obsession of the week. What is your short end? What are you? Uh, what are you all about? Well, uh, my obsession this week goes to uh, Twitter. I've been on Twitter since 2009. I have loved it uh, for a long time. But as you may have heard, a year or so ago, uh, Elon Musk bought it and just started doing stupid crap with it. And I'm not going to even get into his personal politics or who he's featuring on there. It's more about its functionality. And when he first took it over, a lot of us uh, started Hive or Mastodon accounts. I, I started both. Tried using Mastodon, never really got into it. And this past weekend, he imposed a rate limit on it, which was only for a day or two, but it meant that you could only look at 600 posts and it would then you just get a thing that said, your rate limit has been exceeded and you're not allowed to look at more. If you were verified, wow. meaning you're one of the doofuses who's paying eight bucks a month for it, you were allowed to look at 6,000 posts. You go through 600 posts. I mean, that's like scrolling past 600 things. It goes fast. Yeah. And it was pissing a lot of people off. Coincidentally, I had signed up for Blue Sky, which is started by Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. And it's a new protocol and it does RSS feeds and it's going to operate like email and a bunch of other things. But for now... Blue Sky, which is only on an invite-only basis. So I'd like put my name in for, I got on the wait list months ago. 
never got it. And then somebody had an extra invite and they gave it to me. So I was able to sign up. Uh, For All the World looks just like Twitter, but it actually, being on it reminds me of being on Twitter in the early days before it got super toxic. Hmm. And again, that's actually not a, a barb aimed at Elon Musk. I think that Twitter just got super toxic over the years. Like it just became a thing where like, oh, you're Stephen King. I'm going to yell at you at about how much I hate Cujo for no reason. Like, you know, fuck off. But what's interesting is that uh, I was unaware of this till this weekend, but also apparently Facebook or Meta is unveiling a thing called Threads that's going to be another Twitter clone. Oh, wow. Interesting. And so I really wonder, because obviously the idea of, you know, microblogging, as they call it, is sticky enough that people like doing it. I've actually made for real friends who I've interacted with in reality, in real life. I've made friends on Twitter. Anyway, so I've been sort of dipping my toe into blue sky, wondering, and, you know, I don't, I, I wonder what the over-under of uh, Twitter losing massive market share is, but I think it's interesting that there's, like, so many people vying to do what Twitter has done well. Meanwhile, I feel like Twitter is doing everything in its power to just self-immolate as a social networking site. It's really crazy to me, and I still use it, and I still like it, and there are still amazing people on it. But uh, I will say that since Elon Musk took over, it's stopped being moderated, which means that there's a lot more just flat out racist garbage being thrown around. But also stuff like spam messages have gone through the roof and it's not just me. So anyway, I've been kicking it on Blue Sky. If anyone wants to find me there, I'm Neptune Salad at Blue Sky. Um, So are you saying this is the death nail for you and Twitter then? No, I I mean, like, I don't know that I'm going to actually leave Twitter. I'm kind of wondering, like, what the over under is on would I move on? I will say this. If there was a way that I could just download my Twitter history and upload it to Blue Sky and leave Twitter, I would do it right now. Mm, Interesting. You know, but the problem is it's not just my history because it's a history of interactions with however many people I've interacted with over the last, you know, more than a decade that I've been on there. And, uh, you know, it's a very specific kind of communication. Again, I mean, it's maybe too easy of a target to just rag on Elon Musk, but I just feel like whatever he's doing with it is not making Twitter more like what I liked about Twitter once upon a time. And, you know, when he started it, again, I was dicking around with Mastodon and, you know, I just I didn't find that any of them were as good of an interface. But I feel like if you look at Blue Sky, Blue Sky's interface looks for all the world exactly like Twitter. Hmm. Like it's so damn similar. And it doesn't have every bell and whistle, but it, it just works in the simple, obvious way that twi- old old school Twitter kind of used to work. So uh, Blue Sky is kind of my obsession because I'm like trying to understand how it is that the guy who created Twitter could get paid off and leave Twitter and then go create another Twitter. And that's OK. Like that seems like a breach of uh, <laughs> contract. Yeah, exactly. something like yeah. that. Yeah. And also, it's interesting to see. Who's already on there? Stephen King already already on there. Neil Gaiman already on there. A lot of the people who I was following on Twitter are already there. Uh, Blaine Kapatch, one of my favorite comedians, he's already there. You can sort of just pick up where you were and keep on trucking. And again, if I could just download my Twitter history and upload it there, I would do it today. Gotcha. Okay. But well. then, but then this shit goes toxic, and I would, you know, then be like, hey, can I do this to Mastodon? I don't know. I mean, like maybe maybe it is the very nature of social media to eventually go toxic. I don't know. Yeah, it seems to me that there's sort of this devolution of uh, a lot of social media. Even if it starts off wonderful, it inevitably ends up being spammy and hate-filled or or, or whatnot. And you have to figure out how to, uh, you know, wall off your section of it. Otherwise, you end up being, uh, you know, exposed to all kinds of stuff. I 
you know, I could I could be wrong here. I'm I'm curious who out there thinks that if there's any platform that doesn't involve a certain amount of that. But I think that if you curate your own feed uh, successfully, you can minimize a great deal of it. But yeah, I don't think that there's any uh, service out there that is so heavily moderated that you're not going to see some sort of stuff that uh, offends you. Because frankly, everybody out there now has a, if not a megaphone, at least a telephone, and they're going to put whatever they want out there into the world. I'm going to stop talking about this now. Ilya, what is your short end this week? Okay, I went and saw the animated film Across the Spider-Verse, this new Spider-Man movie for the second time, but this time I saw it in IMAX. And uh, I have to say that the experience in IMAX was even better than when I saw it in the original format in the theater, uh, which was a 239 aspect ratio. This time when I saw it, it was expanded for IMAX to a 1.9 aspect ratio, which actually means it was taller than the traditional sort of anamorphic uh, field of view. So does that mean that they, when they animated it, that they animated it in the IMAX aspect ratio and then and then cropped it for most theaters? I think that's exactly what they did. And uh, I've heard that they're going to release that version as well, uh, supposedly, um, for home use. So if you want to see it in 1.9 aspect ratio, supposedly Sony is going to have a a release, a Blu-ray, a 4K Blu-ray IMAX enhanced option. So you don't have to see it in the... Look, I I like both formats, but I got to say, there is still something about seeing a movie on the really, really big screen. And I don't know what sort of uh, upscaling of resolution or enhanced resolution or maybe downscaling they were doing for, for normal theaters. It's it's very opaque. I don't have any clarity on the, the technical well, process let me ask that you went this. through this. Yeah. You, were they screening it off of IMAX film or were they digitally projecting an IMAX image? It was digitally projected for sure. It was not, it was not on film. And I understand that IMAX theaters are actually using multiple projectors for that. So uh, they, they have like multiple 4K projectors and I don't didn't see any sort of stitching. And I don't know if they overlay. I don't know exactly how they were doing it at this particular screening that I was in. But uh, I have to say that if you have not seen Across the Spider-Verse, this is a really good opportunity to go see it. And it is now the third largest IMAX opening ever for Sony and the second largest animated opening ever on on IMAX. It came out a little bit later than the movie when it came out a few weeks ago. And it has been it's been big news. People have really come out to see it. Really, a lot of people came out to support it. And I have to say, I I caught lots of things that I didn't see the first time. And uh, I think I liked it even better the second time. So so is this is this did you see it in real IMAX or what they call LIMAX? Oh, no. Like a a lot of times at an I'm you'll have an IMAX screen at a multiplex, but it's no, this is a real IMAX theater, which was probably like the screen was probably four stories tall or something like that. It was Mm. like, yeah, it was it was major. Is it? Is this going to be is is IMAX going to be the big story this summer because you know we've got that and and Spider-Verse I think is kind of winning the summer or coming close like it's a huge hit and then obviously we have Oppenheimer and Mission Impossible 7 yes indeed um, all vying for IMAX and frankly looking like they deserve that kind of a scope yeah i think that IMAX if you go see the real official IMAX it is uh Definitely, definitely something. It, and it, every real genuine IMAX theater is a stadium experience. And uh, in those theaters, you definitely want to be towards the back. If you're towards the front, oh my goodness, it's going to feel uh, towering over you. But they kind of force you to sit at the correct 
distance if you're even in the back row. You're, you're never really more than about one screen height away. And I gotta say that I was back far enough that I could take the whole thing in, but just the whole scale, the scale of it is is in some ways overwhelming and it's phenomenal. It's a, a, a really good IMAX theater is arguably uh, the best experience I think you can have right now for your for your money out there. It's it's really amazing. Yeah, uh, it's a really remarkable experience and it's extremely artistic movie. Even if you're not a superhero type of person, this movie has got all kinds of different effects and all kinds of different styles of animation that kind of all shoved in there together. There's probably something in there for everyone. It's a lot of fun. Uh, total side note, one of the kids in my son's preschool, his dad edited both of the Spider-Verse movies. Well, he did a really good job. <laughs> no, he's, he's awesome, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, so Ben, I think that's just about going to do us this week. Where can people find you if they want to track you down? Please find me at benrock.com. Also, feel free to, if you're on Blue Sky, go ahead and uh, add me. I'll follow you right back. I'm, I'm Neptune Salad. But uh, go to benrock.com and uh, you can see my reel, uh, catch all my social media, all that, all that jazz. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. You can also find me over at LinkedIn, at Ilya Friedman is me. Uh, oh, and uh, here's another uh, word that is uh, banned from uh, mid-journey for you. I think you'll like this. Infested. Infested is uh, is also banned. So don't... don't. I, I, that one's probably on me. I probably was like doing a thing where eyeballs were infested with wasp <laughs> larvae or something. And they were like, no, no, got to get rid of that. <laughs> I, I I mean, like my first instincts on anything like that is to go for the most disturbing crap I can I can figure out how to do. And uh, uh, also and, uh, also shag shag, which I know is slang, but, you know, don't try to describe a long carpet there because. Uh, well, that's the thing. Shag. Actually, a lot of times you'll ha you'll use a word in a completely innocuous way. It, but it it has a double meaning and it just flags you. And I'm like, you know, your AI moderator should be able to know. Mm -hmm. The difference between uh, shag carpet and shagging on a carpet. Uh, also banned, transparent, transparent banned, and dog collar, dog collar banned. <laughs> Sorry. Mm, weird. <laughs> so, uh, so Ilya, uh, who should we thank this week? Uh, well, let's thank uh, no dog collar, Ben Katz. Ben Katz is, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, like, I'm not going to criticize Ben for what he does in his spare time. Honestly, <laughs> Ben Katz has been slicing and dicing and making sure we sound somewhat sane uh, in, oh, in every episode. Oh, I, yeah, I, I got to say, actually, uh, kudos to Ben. Scott Liebrecht played uh, or, or sent our episode to Steve Spaz Williams, the mm -hmm. subject of Jurassic Punk, and he listened to the interview and, and was uh, very complimentary of the whole episode. That's awesome. That's great. And yeah. not surprising to me at all. Of course it is. Of course it was. So of course it was great. <laughs> ben, ben, ben cut it. Well, of course. Yeah. You know it would be. No, no. I, I really feel like Ben did an amazing job cutting that. So kudos to Ben. And then we should also thank Alana Cody, our awesome producer, who's been lining up amazing interviews for us left and right. And this is the time of year where, you know, we're, well, actually we're in the middle of the summer rush. So we're, we're starting to get to the big summer movies. But leading up to that was that gap between Oscar season and summer movie season. And I feel like Alana did a great job of finding like interesting writers and people who shot really interesting movies that maybe weren't the giant blockbuster sized movies that we could talk to. And so it's uh, it, she's been, she's been doing amazing work. Yeah, indeed. Let's also thank Kay Zellatracci. Kay's, uh, you know, who composed all the music, our theme song, and uh, all kinds of other music that you've heard in War Story episodes. And, you know, multi-hyphenate, he does all kinds of cool stuff, but really talented composer. If you need some music for a project, uh, check out musicbykays.com. So, Ben, I think that just about does it. One more word that's banned from Mid Journey. You ready? Honky. Honky is banned. So... 
Honky mm. Honky is one more word banned from from Mid Journey. Sorry, can't can't generate your your AI. <laughs> honky. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's just about gonna do us, Ben. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.